All right. Well, we're going to uh, continue in our study of Proverbs, and we are in Proverbs chapter 6, and we're really wrapping up um, this section that we've been in, in verses 12 to 19. And the way we're sort of outlining this section or, or, or framing it up is we're, we're breaking it into what we've uh, termed profiles of foolish pride. We, we see in this section, um, I don't think vignettes is the right term, but little descriptions of different profiles. And these profiles really at the heart kind of elucidate or, or um, illustrate various uh, shades or manifestations of really at the core pride. Um, we looked last week uh, at the first couple of, of uh, profiles. The first one was this impulsive pride of imprudent financial dealings. And you see this in the first five verses where this, he's cautioning the son against putting up security uh, for someone that you don't know, a neighbor or a stranger. Um, and really the motivation behind that is, is an impulsiveness, a, a quickness to run into something without thought. Uh, or possibly even a motivation to um, be seen as someone who's grandiose in their financial capacity or who's just extremely generous and benevolent and would be willing to put their name on the line uh, for someone else's debt. And, um, but it, at any rate, it's, it's, this, it's this impulsiveness, uh, this pride of, of impulsiveness and in stepping into something that is very imprudent. And there's a warning against that. And then the second one was this presumptuous pride of laziness and procrastination. And you see this illustration, or you see this identification, actually, of the sluggard. And uh, the sluggard is challenged to take a look at one of the lowliest and tiniest of creatures to be taught from that creature. So the, the, the pride is really confronted with the exhortation to, why don't you, O oh sluggard, take a look at this tiny little creature that demonstrates a level of planning and productivity that far surpasses what you do, and, 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 and be, be uh, challenged and cautioned and rebuked by that instruction. And, and really, we talked about that and elucidated that uh, quite a bit. But today, we come to the third one that's found in verses 12 to 19, and it's a malicious pride of deception and discord. And as I started really looking into this, I, I became convicted and concerned and just my eyes were really open wider to the nature of this this kind of of pride and uh and and felt a sense of reflection and caution in my own heart um, as we look at this because of the nature of it the way it's described here it is it is of such a destructive and diabolical kind um, that can be very very hurtful to people to to um, the, the body of Christ, uh, to individuals. So um, we're going to deal with that today, <clears throat> this impulsive pride of imprudent financial dealings. Why don't we go ahead and just read to get in our minds the full context of these profiles, and we'll then zero in on um, verses 12 through 19 as our study today. Verse 1 of Proverbs 6 says, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. 
How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. And then our focal section now, verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So here again you have this this description, this profile of pride in this form of maliciousness and deception and, and the sowing of discord. In fact, you have this sowing of discord as sort of bookends, in a way, to the passage. It's, you find it in the first section, and you find it in the second section. You find it in the section where you're really just getting the profile described of this person, and then you're getting it in the, section sec- the second section, which really describes God's perspective on the whole matter. And it's not good, as we'll see. But this idea of, of this malicious pride, this deceptive pride, that ultimately results in, in discord, in disharmony, in drawing people to a bad end and to, uh, and to being divided amongst one another, um, is really something that is on focus here in, its all, in all of its maliciousness and all of its um, wickedness. So this, this profile, this person that's described here, let's take a look, first of all, at who he is. Who is this guy? Who is this person? In verse 12, the first part, you see pretty strong language describing this person. A worthless person. A wicked man. So, no mixing of words here by Solomon in this description. Literally, of Belial is, is the way that this is termed in the Hebrew. This is a devilish human being. I mean, we're talking sinister in nature. In fact, Later, in later Jewish literature and even on into the New Testament, this becomes explicitly a name for the devil himself. When you look at uh, 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 15, it's that passage about not being equal, unequally yoked. It says, Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, or with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? So this stark, complete opposite contrast here in reference to Satan himself, the devil, who is the chief of demons. So this person is described here in the vilest, most malicious, most conniving of terms on the face of it, the terms that's used here. Bruce Walkey, one of the commentators that I, I use in my study, he uses terms like an insurrectionist or a malevolent person. Someone who is, who is evil and, and mean and harsh. Someone who is a troublemaker. He uses the term tro- troublemakers of all sorts. Revolutionaries against God and against God's people. This is who this person is. Um, Derek Kidner just uses this term, a mischief maker. Simple term, but to the point. And again, mischievousness or deception 
uh, intent to mislead, intent to provoke towards sin. It's, it, there is an intentionality. We're not talking about the kind of person that is just by their own folly, by a lack of attention to sort of uh, ob- um, objective norms and morals and mores of society, or someone who is just sort of backslidden in their faithfulness as a believer who slips into sin. We're talking about a person who is oriented toward a malicious kind of deviousness and wickedness, and it fleshes itself out in relationship with other people. K.H. Bernhardt says that this kind of person, they use power, their power is used in relation to a community or an individual with negative effect or intention. So it's important that this profile that we see here is not just someone who is, who is characterized by doing bad things. It's not just someone who is, you know, ha- leads a lifestyle of immorality. In fact, it could be quite the opposite. This kind of person could be someone who, on the surface or on the face of it, in whatever context that they operate, in whatever spheres that they have social interaction or relationship, they could appear to be very, very righteous, very upright. So the idea here, again, is not someone who is necessarily overtly uh, immoral in their action. The focus is on the fact that they have a maliciousness and a deceptiveness about their, their activity and their intent. So it's important for us to understand who, who this is. What kind, of, what kind of profile of pride are we talking about here? Well, then it goes on to describe what this person does. Verses, the second half of verse 12 and on into verse 14 says, He goes about with crooked speech. He winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. With perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. This is what he does. There's, there's a maliciousness and a corruption in his speech, in his mannerisms, in his thinking, in his relationship with others. It's, it's comprehensive. The maliciousness, the, the, the effect of deception, the effect of, of leading into some kind of wickedness is comprehensive in its, in its uh, manifestation in this person. Verse 12a, this kind of person distorts the truth. This term crooked speech is used. It's literally a crooked mouth. And it's really referring to fraudulent speech. The kind of speech that that twists things and and takes what is straight and makes it crooked. It's the kind of speech that, that really breaks down the kind of communication upon which a sound, coherent, um, straight living society is based. It, it, it breaks all of that down. And you think about, I mean, I just, I think about, sometimes I think about this in the context of what you see on our TV screens watching the news when it's reporting on politics and, and, the, and these, every time, you know, a politician comes out before the cameras and starts talking about some policy decision, it's like, I, I, how do you know what's what, really? I mean, do you, can you really know for sure what's going on? I mean, it seems like there's just this constant twisting and spinning of things to make people believe something about something as opposed to just straightforward, clear, honest communication. It's that kind of communication that is intended to lead people in a certain direction that is malicious and wicked in nature. Crooked speech is what they do. They, 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 they distort the truth. You look at verse 17 and verse 19, it kind of gives these two things in this list, this, this catalog of the things that God hates, and it uses the term lying tongue. Or another shade of that would be 
someone who's a false witness who breathes out lies. Now think about this. This kind of person and us, if we find ourselves slipping into this kind of behavior and our, you know, letting our flesh take root in this area, this idea of being a false witness and breathing out lies, it's this, it's this picture of it being natural, like breathing. So again, when you think about this in the context of malicious deception, we're not talking about something that looks awkward or sounds awkward or seems so, you know, it's just on, on the face of it, it's just obviously a lie. This is just obviously untrue. We're talking about the, the, the natural way of this communication and its deception. It's like breathing. That's how smooth it can be. And, of course, this is in that list of things that God hates. A lying tongue and a false witness who breathes out lies. Or in the first section, this crooked speech. This is what he does. And then in verse 13, he uses manipulative and sinister mannerisms. This is a, this is a description. He winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. It's that, that their gestures, even their gestures and their mannerisms are oriented toward maliciousness and deception and manipulating people. Um, Proverbs 16.30 says, Whoever winks his eyes plans dishonest things. He who purses his lips brings evil to pass. This makes me think of a little uh, anecdote from yesterday. <laughs> Alicia went to the grocery store. And there was a, a guy working there that we actually kind of know because my daughter used to work at Publix and knows this guy. And nice, super nice guy, great guy. Um, but she said it was kind of struck her because two different times and she, as she passed him and interacted with him, he winked at her. And she was like, I said, well, maybe he's just a winker. You know how some people just kind of, you know, just like that, they just kind of wink. But this guy, again, I, I'm not saying this is, he's that guy. I hope he didn't, that's not the point. The point is, is, that, is that this kind of person it's even in the way, even in their nonverbal communication, it's oriented toward manipulation, toward making someone think something that is not necessarily so. That's the point. And they use their, their physical gestures to do that. Bruce Waltke says his gestures imply that he has followers who agree and conspire with him and understand his nonverbal speech. Right? I mean, and you, you, can, you can imagine this, right? I mean, we, we, we even do this. I mean, as parents, right, we know how to communicate about something going on with our kids without even saying a word. We know how to use nonverbal communication. Well, this person uses it masterfully to accomplish his sinister objectives, to manipulate, to sow discord, and, and the like. Well, then you look at verse 14a, the first part of that, and you see that he also thoughtfully plans wickedness. The way it's described is this, with perverted heart he devises evil. Or down again in the list of the things that God hates in verse 18, a heart that devises wicked plans. Similar uh, phrase there, similar language there. Walke again says, at the center of this catalog stands the heart. Again, we talked about this when we looked at how uh, guard your heart with all vigilance in a prior passage in Proverbs, for out of it flow the springs of life, the issues of life. We are called to guard our heart. Well, in this case, this is certainly a, a malicious heart, a, 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 a deceptive heart, a heart that devises wicked plans. And it's at the center of this catalog, and it's central to this person and who they are and their identity. 
And it, and it, it, it identifies someone who literally is calculating or computing their plans. This is a sophisticated planner of wickedness. This is really important for us to understand about this kind of malicious pride in a person. It's it's someone who is conceiving or inventing, or you might call it creative calculations. We're not talking about someone who's just sort of haphazardly trying to kind of get their way with certain people and you know, manipulate them to their ends. We're talking about someone who is shrewd and crafty in their mental machinations, in their plotting and planning of evil. That's, that's, the, that's the image that we see here. That's the description that we see here. There's a level here of ingenious sophistication, actually, and, and a creativity, even a skillfulness, in this crafty planning to deceive or to manipulate or to lead astray or to sow this discord. And when you think about this, when you start kind of encapsulating this, this picture, this profile, I mean, this is akin to the kind of deceptive skill and mastery of Satan himself. I mean, how can you not think of the garden in Genesis 3 and recognize that we're not talking about we're not talking about a form of malicious deception that is, that is sort of you know, a plebe. It's, 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 not, it's not unsophisticated. It's very, very sophisticated. Very, very complex. Very calculated. It's the kind of, of skill in devising plans that, that Satan himself employed that ultimately led to destruction and death and alienation from God. I mean, it's that, kind of, it's that kind of thoughtful planning and devising of evil schemes of wickedness. And then verse 14b, second part of that, what else does he do? Well, he routinely unleashes conflicts. He unleashes conflicts. It says he, he's continually sowing discord. Or verse 19, again, in that and that catalog of list of things that God hates, one who sows discord among brothers. This is, this, is, this is an intentional unleashing or releasing of something that would sow discord among brothers. The word that's used here is literally, for sowing is literally a word that's used in Judges 15. I thought this was a great, a great picture to, to, to provide you know, some clarity here. It's a word that's used in Judges 15 where Samson ties torches to the tails of foxes, lights them, and unleashes them into the grain, the standing grain and the stacked grain of the Philistines, and to the olive orchards orchards to destroy them. It's that kind of unleashing of discord. It's, a, it's, a, it's an intentional uh, releasing of conflict and discord and and in the second section there, discord, the kind of discord among brothers. So it's not just sort of pitting enemy against enemy. And you think about what, what is the most devious or wicked kind of discord you could sow other than to create discord that would separate brothers, that would put brothers at complete odds with one another. It's that kind of maliciousness and, and wickedness that we're talking about. It's this intentional crafty unleashing of discord and conflict that he's describing. 
So what can he expect? What can this person expect? Well, verse 15, and this is similar to the pattern that you see when when Proverbs describes, you know, the wicked man or is, is cautioning the son against finding himself, you know, in the path or in the pathway of those who are, who are of this type and who do these kinds of things, there is a judgment. There is consequence. He says in verse 15, Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. I mean, this is the language of, of judgment or, or being under God's wrath. And it could be the kind of calamity, the kind of, of uh, brokenness that comes as a result of consequence and just the consequences of, of evil action and, and, and wickedness. Or it could be actually something that God decrees in judgment against someone that you don't necessarily know. It looks like a consequence, but it could be that God decreed it you know, in a, in a specific way. Um, as in, instead of it being under his providential um, um, sovereignty and, and the consequences that might ensue from this kind of action. That's what, that's what this person can expect, ultimately. In other words, this is, this is a word of both caution and a word of hope. It's a word of, of caution to say, look, there are these kinds of people, and they will not go without consequence, no matter how it looks, because the implication here is that this kind of person is probably very successful. I mean, that's why the caution is coming to this son. This is a person, this is a kind of person, this is a profile of person that has success in their activity. They're, they're, not, they're not failing in their endeavors to sow discord, to lead people astray, to devise wicked plans that they can then carry out. They're not, they're not, they're not losing ground. They're probably gaining ground. And they're probably, they're probably manifesting what looks like you know, a lack of consequence for their actions. And can we not think of that in our own, our own experience, our own society, our own culture, examples of that, where it seems like people should be getting in trouble for this stuff, right? Aren't there laws against this? I mean, there's something. Something's got to give here, right? Well, this is the kind of person that, that we would look at possibly and say, okay, that's, that what they're doing is wicked. Why are, why are there no consequences? Why are they getting away from that? And the promise is they don't get away from it, from, with it. There are consequences. There is judgment. And it can come suddenly, in a moment. And it's the kind of judgment that is beyond healing, the Scripture says. This is a reference to ultimate judgment for this kind of malicious pride, this kind of scheming pride in a person. Well, then you have God's perspective on this profile with a little more um, uh, elucidation, a little more uh, listing of characteristics in verse 16 to 19. It says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And then he says, verse 17, haughty eyes. So there's the reference to pride. I mean, this behind all of this is pride. Someone wanting what they want. Someone wanting to get what they want. Someone, want, someone wanting to control other people to their own ends. And 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 this list of the things that God hates begins with that, that character quality. That, 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 that haughty eyes is this description of someone who is prideful, who is arrogant, who, who looks down upon others and, and sees them as pawns, sees them as someone for them to use or leverage for their gain or their purposes. The first point there is, is a haughtiness or a, a pridefulness. And then again, we've alluded to this, a lying tongue, a deceiving tongue, someone who just doesn't speak truth, doesn't speak plainly, and doesn't tell the truth. 
hands that shed innocent blood. Again, just a reference to someone who is willing to shed the blood of someone who is not worthy of it, someone who is innocent. A heart that devises wicked plans, we've talked about that. Feet that make haste to run to evil, there's a new descriptor there. Someone who's not just um, sort of passively finding themselves in wickedness, but they are intentionally running to it. There's, there's an aggressiveness there, there's an intentionality there to run to evil. And then a false witness who breathes out lies, someone who naturally knows how to communicate in a way that brings slander and shame upon another maliciously, deceptively, and dishonestly, and it has its effect. And one who sows discord among brothers. These are the things that God hates. This is God's perspective on this kind of profile. Haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now, when you consider this list, I have a question for you. When you consider this list, and this is kind of an anatomy of the consummate enemy of God, speaking of their eyes and their lips and their tongue, their hands, their heart, their feet, even the air that they breathe, this anatomy of a consummate enemy of God. Why do you think these things are the objects of God's hatred? Absolutely. That are coming, that are even here now. Yeah. Why else? Who else is it a description of? Politicians. <laughs> <laughs> Satan himself, right? I mean, think about that. And did you mean that when you said politicians? Uh, no, I shouldn't say that. That's not. That's not right. That was a, that was a joke. Sorry. Huh, the media. So so. But the the point is, is that when you think about this list and you think about the description here, these are things that God hates. I mean, doesn't it get your attention to see a passage of Scripture that says, this is what God hates? I mean, right? I mean, we, you see a lot in Scripture about the love of God and the kindness of God and the grace of God and the will of God and the sovereignty of God and the purposes of God and the plans of God, but the things that become the object of God's hatred, it's like, whoa, hang on. I, I need to take serious note of that. What is this that God hates and why? And when you look at this list, this is like the resume of Satan himself. It's, it's, a, it's a classic resume. This, this, this one whose arrogance led to his own fall, right? And then ultimately his deception that basically catapulted the world into corruption, which ultimately required the sacrifice of the very Son of God to atone for the sins of God's elect. I mean, when you put it into that kind of context, when you, when, you, when you identify this kind of wicked pride, this kind of evil, and what it resulted in in the fall, and what it cost in the sacrifice of the Son of God, even according to the sovereign plan of God, still, you can see how hatred would be maybe even too mild a term. Yeah. Yeah, Richard, um... <clears throat> are not, God doesn't say things because they're true. Things are true because God says them. Right. He, he speaks reality into existence. Mm-hmm. And he, he never 
has to, nor could he ever, stoop to deception because everything he does is true. Mm -hmm. And this is the antithesis. That's right. And so sin is what, whatever opposes God. That's right. And this is opposed to what the very essence of God. And this just gives a very sort of vivid image of how this manifests, this this sowing of, of untruth, of what is antithetical to the very nature of God being the source of all truth, truth himself. Yes. Now, the thing I want to kind of settle in on here for the remainder of our time is that I, I alluded to it a moment ago, but, but this is not always obvious to us. And, and this is what I, I want to, I want to, I, this is what, um, in my own study of this, this is what made me really think about my own, my own words, my own um, motives. It made me think about how, what I'm paying attention to. Am I really thinking about things carefully? It really made me think about this whole issue of discernment in my own heart and mind, my own life. Because this, this kind of person, if you will, this profile... It's not the kind of profile that is obvious. If you think about what happened in the garden, um, it's quite astounding to just to just recount that that event. When you have the very command of God, who just created all things that they see and created them and walked with them in the cool of the day, I mean, it, it, it's the, the the clarity and the simplicity of what was required and expected couldn't have been more plain, and yet the ability to deceive, the ability to lead into sin was masterfully executed in that setting, and it wasn't obvious what was going on. And so the need for discernment is paramount, and this is one of those uh, subjects that you can do a lot of reading on and find a lot of sort of lamenting um, articles and sermons being preached because we're living in a day and time where it seems that it's discernment is a rare commodity, even among God's people, being discerning about what is true and what is not. So I want to just take a little bit of time and read a few things to you that I came across um, just to, to set this in our minds about the need for us to understand the importance of discernment. And when you think about Proverbs itself, it's oriented toward teaching in discernment. You're not always talking about trying to discern between what is obviously a lie and what is obviously the truth. It's not so straightforward and plain in that regard. But the need for us to be discerning is nevertheless critically important. I'm sitting here thinking about examples in my own life, and maybe this is, hopefully this is not too personal, but I, I mean, I've got situations in my own life and relationships that, you know, friendships that I'm involved in where, um, where you never would have expected to happen is happening. Where, where, where people that, you know, you, I, I'm, I'm thinking of a particular friend, where, where people that they thought that they knew really, really well are doing things and behaving in ways that, could never have been, they never would have imagined. And we're talking about in the context of people who are professing Christians here. So I'm just, I'm just mindful of this need for us to be very discerning in our thinking about matters of truth and falsehood. 
Sinclair Ferguson says this, Most of us doubtless want to distance ourselves from what might be regarded as lunatic fringe of contemporary Christianity. We are on our guard against being led astray by false teachers. But there is more to discernment than this. True discernment means not only distinguishing the right from the wrong, it means distinguishing the primary from the secondary, the essential from the indifferent, and the permanent from the transient. And yes, it means distinguishing between the good and the better, and even between the better and the best. But what is discernment? The word used in Psalm 119.66 means taste. And that verse says, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Ferguson goes on, he says, it is the ability to make discriminating judgments, to distinguish between and recognize the moral implications of different situations and courses of action. It includes the ability to weigh up and assess the moral and spiritual status of individuals, groups, and even movements. Thus, while warning us against judgmentalism, Jesus urges us to be discerning and discriminating lest we cast our pearls before pigs in Matthew chapter 7. Listen to this passage of scripture. This is a, a, just a fascinating um, part of teaching, piece of teaching here for, by Christ and very familiar to us. But just listen to how it's put together here. Matthew chapter 7, he says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now this is oftentimes a passage that makes us cautious about, you know, confronting other people, you know, confronting people in their sin because we're just concerned about our own you know, sinfulness and the log in our own eye, and so we might hesitate. But he goes on to really create the balancing statement here in, in addition to the fact that, you know, you are called to examine yourself, but you're not uh, prevented from actually going to a brother and speaking to them about the speck in their own eye. Just be sure that the log from your eye is gone. But then he goes on to say, Do not give dogs what is holy, And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So in other words, there are are some cases and some situations where it is not wise nor fruitful and could be ultimately dangerous to try to present or convey or confront people in matters of truth. And therein lies the need for discernment, right? I mean, think about the, the challenge of that kind of dynamic. How does a believer know when this is a situation where I need to go to them and speak to them? Or how do they know if this is a situation where I'm casting pearls before swine? How, how, do, they, how do they tell that? There's a call here for discernment. Ferguson goes on to say, Discernment is learning to think God's thoughts after him, practically and spiritually. It means having a sense of how things look in God's eyes and seeing them in some measure Uncovered and laid bare, as Hebrews fourteen, excuse me, Hebrews four thirteen says. John MacArthur says this about discernment. He says the key to living an uncompromising life lies in one's ability to exercise discernment in every area of his or her life. 
For example, failure to distinguish between truth and error leaves the Christian subject to all manner of false teaching. False teaching then leads to an unbiblical mindset, which results in unfruitful and disobedient living, a certain recipe for compromise. Unfortunately, discernment is in an area where most Christians stumble. They exhibit little ability to measure the things they are taught against the infallible standards of God's Word, and they unwittingly engage in all kinds of unbiblical decision-making and behavior. In short, they are not armed to take a decidedly biblical stand against the onslaught of unbiblical thinking and attitudes that face them throughout their day. And then Sinclair Ferguson, and we'll wrap up with this, he, he, he talks about the impact of discernment. What does is, what is being more discerning provide, or what are the benefits of discernment in the life of the believer? How does this discernment affect the way we live, he asks. Well, in four ways. Number one, it acts as a means of protection, guarding us from being deceived spiritually. It protects us from being blown away by the winds of teaching. And listen to this, that makes central an element of the gospel that is peripheral. Or treat a particular application of Scripture as though it were Scripture's message. Do you see how that's discernment? That's, that's a key to discernment. We're not talking about what is obvious to everybody on the face of it. We're talking about those areas where it's easy and even common for people to get wrapped up in periphery, periphery but trying to argue that it's central. Number two, another benefit, discernment also acts as an instrument of healing when exercised in grace. I have known a small number of people whose ability to diagnose the spiritual needs of others has been remarkable. Such people seem able to penetrate into the heart issues someone else faces better than the person can do. Of course, this is, in some ways, a dangerous gift with which God has entrusted them. But when exercised in love, discernment can be the surgical scalpel in spiritual surgery that makes healing possible. So the more we're able to exercise discernment, to grow in discernment, the more we can bring about truth in these matters and bring about healing where there might be pain or discord. And then third, discernment functions as a key to Christian freedom. And I love the way he phrases this. The zealous but undiscerning Christian. So we're not talking about someone who's without zeal, without passion, without excitement about being a Christian, about the people of God and the Word of God. We're talking about zealous. The zealous but undiscerning Christian becomes enslaved. Enslaved how or with who or what? Enslaved to others, to his own uneducated conscience, to an unbiblical pattern of life. Growth and discernment sets us free from such bondage, enabling us to distinguish practices that may be helpful in some circumstances from those that are mandated in all circumstances. But in another way, true discernment enables the free Christian to recognize that the exercise of freedom is not essential to the enjoyment of it. And fourth and finally, discernment serves as a catalyst to spiritual development. The mocker seeks wisdom and finds none, but knowledge comes easily to the discerning, Proverbs 14.6 says. Why? Because the discerning Christian goes to the heart of a matter. He knows something about everything, namely that all things have their common fountain in God. Increase in knowledge, therefore, does not lead to increased frustration, but to a deeper recognition of the harmony 
of all God's works in words. So when I think about this and when I read through this myself, I can't help but but think about how discerning I am or not. Am I a zealous Christian, but yet still undiscerning? I mean, I'm standing up here teaching. I must have some desire, interest in Christian things and in the Word of God. I'm, I'm spouting off like I do, right, every single week. But am I discerning? Am I seeking to understand the heart of a matter? Particularly in the context of relationships with people and, and conflict going on with people and, and trying to understand what is, what is most important here. What is the core issue that we really need to be dealing with? And is it not in fact true that you can apply this to our normal uh, sort of day-to-day interactions? Have you? I'll just ask you this question. Those of you that um, are married, and you don't have to raise your hand because I already know it's true. Have you ever gotten into a little bit of a disagreement, not that any of you have big disagreements, but maybe a little disagreement uh, with your spouse, and within a matter of minutes, maybe even for some, some of us seconds, the core issue is completely lost in a stream of superfluous words, accusations, over-exaggerations, you know, you never, you always... This always happens. I mean, you know, and all of a sudden, the core issue that initiated the disagreement gets lost. Well, bring that into the context of life in the body of Christ, of those who are supposed to be linking arms and joining together as an actual body with our gifts and using those gifts and stewarding those gifts for the fulfillment of the purpose and mission of God on the planet and in our community. And we get caught up in extraneous matters too easily and we are totally oblivious to what the core issues really are, that becomes deadly to the fruitfulness of a body quickly. So it's easy for me to see how this issue of discernment, in light of thinking about this profile of malicious pride that you just can't always necessarily see on the surface, but it is real, and it is vile, and it is crafty, and it is sophisticated, and it has intent to destroy in the same manner as Satan himself does, coming to us as an angel of light. So I think that in this profile, there's not just a warning to the Son, but there's a warning to us in the body of Christ, that we need to be mindful that discernment is of paramount importance to be able to get to the heart of a matter, to be able to test and judge things according to the clear truth of God's word and to leave things that are peripheral where they belong. So God help us. God help us. It's not, not very fun, is it? Our defense mechanisms immediately come in because it's just too, de- too devastating. Yeah. Yeah. So it's one of those, um, I don't know what the right term is, but it's one of those, um, I don't know, those gracious spears to the heart, right? This is one of those, those gracious yet painful things that we 
we deal with. You know, you're in a situation and you start reflecting upon how you conducted yourself in a conversation or a meeting and you just immediately go, I am a vile person. Thank you, God, for your grace. Otherwise, I mean, you just... But growing in that discernment. The other thing, too, I would say, as you think about this, is that there's a lot of focus here on, on speech, on, on words. And I would say that one key practical principle about uh, growing in discernment is um, the increasing capacity to not have to weigh in on a matter all the time. The, 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 the growing ability to um, be comfortable in your own silence on a matter, especially if you're not certain about a matter. Yeah. I think someone once said, I don't want to think about it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I think that we just have to be mindful of this, and um, I'm not sure, it's, it's, it's in Proverbs, I can't remember which, where it's located, and forgive me for that, but it's something, I think I'm, it goes something like this, that where there is an abundance of words, sin is not lacking. Yeah. So just the fact of being slow to speak, quick to listen, and waiting to really understand a matter, don't answer a matter before you know it, is another Proverbs, right? It's just this idea of waiting and, and really assessing and weighing a matter carefully against the truth of Scripture, instead of feeling like we have to rush in and, and level some opinion, or we have to rush in and, and make sure we gather all the data so that we're in the know, so that we can you know, communicate coherently and not be embarrassed in a conversation. Whatever those motivations might be, discernment would compel us in a different direction. So, well, any other final thoughts before we pray and are dismissed? would say, mm-hmm. you know, that's the kind of attitude I should, you 
Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just truly to be just really, really, really humbly yourself and say this, you know, but for the grace of God, I would be doing the exact same thing. Yeah. Every time. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the thing that comes to my mind is, is that you, um, you may find yourself needing to step into those matters, but you certainly, certainly shouldn't be rushing into them. Man, those steps should be cautious and slow and very careful it, 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 if, they're, if they're going to happen at all. You should be very careful. And that should be generated by a sense of humility and recognition of our own need for grace and forgiveness. It's good. All right, I'll pray for us and we'll be dismissed.